can be seated. Um, this morning, I'm going to start out today's sermon by telling you a little quick story that I think will help be a great segue for us here this morning. Um, today, I'm going to be telling you the story of Don Rabbit and the Sexy Carrot, all right? Um, this story was written by a guy named Donald Miller, and it's read by me, Eric Baker, all right? Don Rabbit and the Sexy Carrot. There once was a rabbit named Don Rabbit. And Don Rabbit went to Stumptown Coffee every morning. One morning at Stumptown, Don Rabbit saw Sexy Carrot. And Don decided to chase Sexy Carrot. But Sexy Carrot was very fast. And Don Rabbit chased Sexy Carrot all over Oregon. And all over America. All the way to New York City. And Don Rabbit chased Sexy Carrot all the way to the moon. And Don Rabbit was very, very tired. But with one last burst of strength, you can tell I'm a parent, Don Rabbit lunged at Sexy Carrot. And Don Rabbit caught Sexy Carrot. And the moral of this story is that if you work hard, stay focused, and never give up, you will eventually get what you want in life. Unfortunately, short after the story was told, Don Rabbit choked on the carrot and died. So the second moral of the story is this. Sometimes the things that we want most in life are the things that will kill us. And that is the story of Don Rabbit and the sexy carrot. If there's ever a definition of lust, it is this idea that there are things within us um, that become the most valuable thing to us. They were what we want most in life. And sometimes we are even allowed to have those things. And yet the reality is, is some of the things that you and I want most out of life are the very things that will kill us. See, you fill in the blank, people, position, power, the things in life, the time, the talent, the treasures, the person. These things, though many times are good, but when they become our God, literally can kill us physically or spiritually. See, today Jesus is going to address lust. Lust is, uh, in one case, uh, intense sexual desire, but it also means to be passionate a mastering desire or craving, to have a, a yearning desire, to hunger, and to have strong, excessive craving. Though today we're primarily going to be dealing with this idea of sexual lust, I want everyone to understand this, that we can lust and crave anything and anyone, not just sex. So the sermon is literally for us all. We can be lust-filled for a lot of things in the world that you and I currently live in. Jesus begins this there in verse 27, look at it, where it says, You have heard it uh, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. As we've been learning over the last several weeks, Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He says that all of the gospel, all of the scriptures, that it points 
to me. And so he says that earlier in chapter 5, and in the last two weeks he's laying out some specific commandments from the, the Ten Commandments and how this plays out for the citizens of God, for the people of God, the people that are saved that we live differently than the world around us. And that's very much the case that he did. Last week he talked about um, the Sixth Commandment, Uh, found in Exodus chapter 20, and today he's going to be talking about the seventh commandment. Jesus says, this is what you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. So the commandment that we see there in Exodus is do not commit adultery. Now this would also include fornication. We talk about adultery being that you've got a man and a woman that are married, and someone starts engaging in sexual immorality outside of that marriage. But I want you to know that that also would include this idea of fornication. That's two people unmarried who are participating in sexual activity. And Jesus says that. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, our our temptation there is to do this, is to really misunderstand what God is saying in general, even about sex and sexuality. It's, can you go back to my slides there? I've got lots today. Is this, the first thing that we need to understand this morning is that, that sex is a gift, and it's from God. Sex is a gift, and it's from God. When, when God created man and woman, he placed them in a garden naked. All right? Naked. You know, I, I think that it's, it's hard for us to imagine that God has created and invented sex. And even says and believes that, that it is good. It is good. This is a great gift from God. I don't think that alarm went off in heaven. Can you imagine? Um, um, uh, God, this is Gabriel, and uh, Adam and Eve have gone to phase two, and we're not exactly really what that is. I, I, you know, I don't think this is what's taking place inside of the heavenly realms. Obviously, I think it's very clear that, that God created male as male. He created female as female and, and gave them this great gift of intimacy. He celebrates it. He gives this activity. And I I can think that we can say that Adam and Eve participated in this even before the fall. But we clearly know that after the fall that they did, because we get from Genesis chapter 4, the Bible even says that Adam knew Eve and she conceived a child. This term knew here in the Hebrew is a very deep word meaning deep intimacy. Isn't it interesting that Jesus just, or God doesn't say Adam had sex with Eve, but he uses this terminology that they knew each other. Adam and Eve knew each other like they had known no one else. And that is the same thing that in the same way that it is supposed to be for you and I in our marriage covenants as well, that we should know no one else like we know our husbands or wives. See, God gave marriage, the marriage covenant, this gift. It was an experience that was to draw the husband and wife together, reflecting the very biblical picture of what it meant to be bone of bone and flesh of flesh. Literally, the man and woman become one under God. And this is good. This is good. Did you know that that sex and marriage is a worship experience that honors God? 
if it's done for the right purposes. I mean, let's face it, if we were to be very confessional here this morning, it's like we're cool with God, we follow Jesus, but as soon as the door is closed and that begins to take place, a lot of times the last thing that's on our mind is worshiping Jesus. And yet, this gift from God and that moment between man and woman in the marriage covenant is a worship experience. As much as we've come here today, maybe we'll lift our hands, we're listening to worship music, we're hearing the preaching and teaching of God's Word, we think, man, we've come to a worship experience when intimacy is taking place between especially believers in Jesus in the bedroom, then that is as valuable and as God-honoring as your attendance and participation here this morning. God wants us in this experience to, to worship God and to love one another. Every time that this happens, it is to reflect that first night. Just like on Sunday morning, as we gather every Sunday, it is Resurrection Sunday. That doesn't happen one time a year on Easter, but it is supposed to happen every Sunday. It is a Resurrection Sunday every time the man and woman under God come together in sexual intimacy. It is, again, to remind them of the greatness of God and Him giving this gift. I've had friends who, uh, on their honeymoon night, before they did what married people do, that he got down on his hands and knees and he washed his wife's feet. Because he told her, from this day forward, I will serve you as Jesus did, even in the bedroom. Now, that's a picture of the gospel. We even get to peer into this between a married man and a woman on their honeymoon night in the Old Testament. In the book, The Song of Solomon, which is all about intimacy between a man and a woman. Um, I once read that Jewish little boys were not allowed to read this section of Scripture because it was so detailed that parents believed that it would arouse within them curiosity and passion before their time. So if you want some good meditation for your soul this afternoon, go home and read the Song of Solomon, especially like chapter 7. Not that I haven't memorized, but like chapter 7, 8, 9. There's some interesting things happening there. If sex did not exist, none of us would this morning. This gift from God for the purpose of procreation and also recreation between a husband and wife. It is meant for our joy our good, and our worship of God. We should thank God for it because He gave us such a unique and beautiful gift. We also need to be careful when talking about sex to our children, which they should learn it from us. But we also need to be careful when talking to children and teenagers and to each other about sex. We don't need to be coarse. And true, there are some areas that should be left between you and your spouse. It's we should never make these truths into locker room conversations that would devalue God and the other person. We must be careful in church not to demonize sex and sexual desires. A lot of people have been really mis, uh, have a very unbiblical view of sexual desires and sex. And a lot of that, if we're confessional, has been brought on by a real screwed up view of those things at church. Those are things we do not talk about. Okay, We do not discuss those things at church. And so that leaves people to do what? To go find answers 
out in the world instead of finding those answers from their parents or from their pastors and different leaders. We need to be careful with these things. It's important for us to understand, as D.A. Carson says, is this. Sex is about timing. Whoops. Whoops. Sex is about timing and context. The world says, any time, any place. God says, my time and my place. Sin, Satan, and death are constantly tempting us with things that are good. Sex is good. Yet, at the wrong time, um, or we take these good gifts from God and replace them, instead of worshiping God, we, we begin to worship these things. However, due to the fall, due to sin, due to our very sin nature, sex has become distorted from God's original intent. From Genesis 4 to Revelation, there is story after story, image after image, event after event, where sexual immorality causes major issues for individuals, marriages, and the church. Sin, Satan, and death has, has confused us and has blurred those boundaries. Instead of seeing sex as a gift, sex has left many people, even within the church, viewing sex as being gross, sex as just being genetics, or sex as God. The first one is this, is sex is gross. This is a, a, an issue in a lot of people. This is a sin issue in a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who have, because of the fall and because of sin, view this gift as simply being something that is gross. For some, sex, even with a marriage, has become gross. It's something that they, they don't even enjoy. And I can realize that there are lots of reasons this morning that we don't have time to go into of why they may feel that way. This often happens to people who have been in church or had parents who, with good intentions, um, really confused teenagers or children about sex. Sometimes wanting to scare them into not doing it has, has caused a disconnect between a person's heart and mind. Sexual desire is a good thing, but we can be made to believe that it's not. I know a young couple um, who have really struggled, even on their honeymoon, because mainly the female really had a mental block when it came to sex. She had been told over and over and over again to have sex is the worst thing that you can do. It is the worst sin possible. And so she believed that. And she took that baggage even into the marriage bedroom. It's caused major, major issues for them. Um, it is ingrained in them so much that they think that it's nasty and the unforgivable sin that even on their honeymoon they felt like it was wrong and sinful. For some, they just don't enjoy it. And I want you to know, I think, again, that is a sign of sin, that is a sign of fall inside of us. Others, and I want to be really sensitive here, uh, struggle sexually because of some prior abuse. This is really difficult. And there is much prayer, communication, and counseling that is needed to repair the pain and agony of sexual abuse. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, if that is you, that Jesus is our healer and can heal you of even those things. 
I want us to understand this morning that all of these issues are byproducts of a broken, sinful world. Paul is pretty clear that in the book of Corinthians that married couples should celebrate this gift so that they are not tempted in other areas. They tell me that the two leading causes of divorce is money and sex. Having sexual intimacy outside of the marriage or not having a healthy sex life within the marriage can cause a ton of tension that usually is not talked about or it's just yelled and screamed about. This is very difficult where there's a lack of enjoyment to, to some reason. It's important for us to understand that, that God thinks that this is good. That we should not abstain from it if you're married. Unless that's for fasting purposes only. For a season. So that you can focus on God. And then the healthy thing is for you to engage so sin has left many people thinking that sex is gross. Uh, the next thing that people struggle with is they, they will say this, that sex is just genetic. A lot of people have come so numb to the reality and gift that sex is that they simply reduce it down to genetics or biology. Animals do it. We're animals, so we do it too. It's nothing but a physical activity between two animals. It means nothing. Reducing sex to this kind of level is extremely dangerous. This is illustrated in the number of people who are having sexual, multiple sexual partners, um, people, the increased number of, of one-night stands, and the common practice has become meal, movie, make out, go home, never see you again. It's just genetics. It's just biology. It doesn't really hurt anybody. It's just fun. Yet there are many animals, swans, wolves, termites, <laughs> that, that mate for life. And if we're just reducing it down to being animals, then there are animals in the animal kingdom that also mate for life. And this is the design of God. See, sex is physical, yes, but sex is also emotional, and it's also spiritual, during physical touch, such as kissing, hugging, and other sexual activity, the body even releases a chemical named oxytocin. This oxytocin within our, our body, as it secretes from our system, literally is the bonding agent of people. It, it literally is a, a neurotransmitter to the brain that causes a person to bond to another person. And so that's why even in the marriage uh, bedroom that when you feel disconnected, a lot of times even sexual intimacy can help a couple feel reconnected. It can help them feel close again. This is the same thing that happens every time that a woman is nursing her baby or even when a woman gives birth. Have, have you ever noticed that, that uh, the dad, if you're in the room, you know, the, the baby comes out and you're like, oh my gosh, my kid is ugly. <laughs> like look at that alien baby that just came from my wife. But immediately, that mom, as she has placed the baby into her hands, she's like, it's beautiful. And you're like, oh, no, girl. You better hope he gets some help. But mom is like, no, look at my... I mean, it's gooey. Its eyes are all slanted. Got that big cone head. And mama's like, look at my precious... Like, oh, kid got hit by an ugly truck. 
I mean, that's what dad is wrestling. Why, though? Because even within that mom, when she gives birth, immediately there is a flooding of this chemical that God has created and placed inside of us called oxytocin that immediately binds us to that child. I know this with Laura and I. After we went on like one or two dates, I was like, I'm going to marry this girl. I didn't tell anybody that, but that's the feeling that I have. And I even told somebody at the time, I was like, I don't love her yet, but I'm going to one day and we're going to get married. But Laura will tell you, it wasn't a kiss because we didn't do that for months um, in our relationship. Um, But Laura will tell you to this day, the thing that won her over and she knew there is something about this guy was when I took these big old long gigantic arms that dragged the floor and wrapped him around her for the first time. It bound us together even to this day. So it is more than physical. It's also emotional. A lot of people, when they're engaging in sexual activity, some laugh, some are joy-filled, some even cry with joy. Even when people have been sexually active, um, people will often feel shame or dirty. So it's not just physical. It's also emotional. Lastly, sex is spiritual. Christianity is not the only reason to believe this. Even the Apostle Paul was dealing with this in the letter he wrote to the church at Corinth. At pagan temples, there were temple prostitutes who were paid to have sex with people in order to connect with gods, and it was believed that there were mystical powers in an orgasm. Paul was warning the Corinthians to stay away from these practices because of their spiritual ramification Christ is in you and should not be joined through our body to pagan gods. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, from, For from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. Jesus is saying something much greater here. He is saying something about our hearts. As I told you last week, see, the Jews thought, man, as long as I don't kill anybody, then I'm good. I can hate someone. I can murder someone in my mind. I can murder them with my lips. I can call them bad names, and we're all good. As long as I don't take a knife and kill them, stone them, shoot them, whatever it is, then I am approved by God. And we saw last week that Jesus says, no, that's not the issue. The issue is not just the physical holding of a knife or shooting of someone, but it is the desires of of your heart that are equal to murder. And this blew the Jews away. In the same way, they thought, man, as long as I do not have intercourse with, with someone who is not my wife, then I am approved by God. My thought life doesn't matter. Um, maybe even if I go up to the line, but we don't, do, we don't go that far, then all of those things are okay. I am approved by God. And yet Jesus is saying, ladies and gentlemen, no, we've got to scale back the layers here that I am desiring and I am after your hearts and what's going on there. So the struggle is, for most of us, is this is that this gift from God has become God. It's become God. Sin has distorted this gift of sex, and, and many of us have made it an idol in our lives. We have made it God. We have worshipped it. 
We hold it at such value that we spend hours thinking about it and, and spend large amounts of money to, to gratify these desires. The root of this is a worship that is filled with lust. The classic example that we see this in Scripture is King David, right? If you remember, King David is on the, he's a, it's like the afternoon, and he's walking out on his, I guess, deck, his palace. His, you know, he's looking over his city, and the Bible tells us that he, he looked down and he saw this woman named Bathsheba, and, and she must have been a stunner. I mean, she must have been a looker. She was a beautiful, beautiful lady, and she is naked, and she is taking a bath. And the Bible tells us that, that, that David is so lustful for her. He's so craving this woman that he sends his servants to go get the woman, brings her up to his, his, the king's chamber. He has sex with her. She becomes pregnant. And the sin leads to sin after sin after sin to the point where even David has her own husband killed so that he can have Uriah's wife. See, sin did not originate in the actual physical activity of sex, of sex, but it was in the inner. It was the lust-filled corridors of his heart. This is what Jesus is trying to explain to his listeners on that mountain that day. He says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks, he says, he's able to say, But I say, you have heard it said this, But I, who is I? King Jesus, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to this guy named Jesus. And he says, you've heard this, and you believe this, but I am king, and I'm going to tell you what I'm really trying to say here. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery in her, or excuse me, in, with her in his heart. See, lust is a silent killer of intimacy with Jesus and intimacy with with others. Lust is a silent killer because you can participate in the sin without anyone but you and God knowing it. As they say, history has a way of repeating itself. And let's face it, we're currently living in an era of a sexual revolution. Let me take a moment. Man, brothers and sisters, I want you to know this this morning, and I know that they don't tell you to do this in seminary. And this has been an issue in my life. And early in my relationship with Jesus and, and becoming married, man, I, I mean, I've had to, there's some things that you would think if you knew about Laura and I's life. I, I, by God's grace, I've never been addicted to pornography, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But man, there, there have been some real struggles in my life. I know that it, alcoholism isn't, it's not a struggle for me, you know, doing meth or any of those sorts of things just doesn't seem very appealing to me. But I know in my own heart, in my own nature, I, I would have a bent toward these things. So I come not at you throwing stones. I come at you as a fellow struggler, struggler, not struggler, struggler, because of the culture that we lived in, I cannot, imagine, I cannot imagine being 13 or 14 years of age right now and having an internet. I couldn't imagine what that would have been like. These are real struggles. Times have greatly changed, haven't they? Just over 100 years ago, 
this lady right here. Just over 100 years ago, in 1907, a swimmer named Annette Killerman from Australia visited the United States, and she is an underwater ballerina. A version of synchronized swimming involving diving into glass tanks. When she got here to America, she was arrested for indecent exposure because her swim shoot, this one, showed her arms and her neck. And she was put in jail. Let's face it, we live in a culture that's very, very different from that. We live in a culture where anything and everything goes. From the way that we sell merchandise to the television, movies, the music we listen to, to the way that we describe food as being sexy. There's even a television show right now called Food Porn. And I want you to know, I'm not talking about just, I'm, I struggle with lust in regards to women. I struggle in lust in a lot of areas, and food is one of those. We describe food as being sexy. We live in a culture that has shifted to less is more or tighter is better. If you listen to secular music right now, how many of the songs that we now sing and our children are singing are about body parts? And we award Grammys to songs about body parts and what you can do with those body parts. And we claim this is music. Beethoven would be rolling over. We, we live in a time and, and realize that, man, this should... Real, we should realize that this is a major, major problem. Confessionally, and it can be difficult for us as men to check out at Kroger. Because Satan, I believe, has led them. It's like Kit Kat, Reese's, root beer. Those, that, her. It can be a real struggle. You know, I grew up in the 80s primarily. I was born in the 70s, but I kind of grew up in the 80s. And during the 80s, especially, um, women in the church that I grew up in, you wore pantyhose underneath, like, your pants, which I never understood, and under your dresses. In 2016, we call pantyhose pants. And it's cool. And it's... You can look like you're going to the gym when you haven't been to the gym in years. And it's accepted. The other day I was talking to a brother at my favorite local coffee shop, and this girl went in. She was extremely attractive. And there is nothing wrong with realizing that a person is attractive. I don't think that that's a sin. Sin is taking that further. It's placing you and them in a situation that you should not be in. We can't help but notice that some people are beautiful. All right? They just are. God, God made them that way. Thank God they're, they're beautiful. I think my wife is, is beautiful. All right? But I was, I was getting coffee. I was talking to a guy from Crusade on staff, and um, I always sit at the same place unless somebody steals my seat and it makes me really upset. I become angry and murder them with my mind. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. And I sit where I can see where people are paying for their coffee. 
you know, there's lots of attractive people come in there, lots of college students and, and those sorts of things that come into the coffee shop. Another day, I had to ask my brother, I said, man, I know that this is crazy, but I'm, I'm going to talk to you, but I'm going to stare at this wall. Because there's a girl, she's beautiful. But she might as well not be wearing anything. And that's a struggle. The struggle is real. Every day, it's a struggle. It's interesting because of, in this sexual revolution of what has happened, listen to these things. One in five mobile searches is for pornography. The porn industry generates $13 billion a year in the U.S., 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. Nine out of ten boys were exposed to pornography before the age of 18, with the average first exposure being at 12 years old. That's when it was for your pastor, one of your pastors. I was 12 years old. My buddy said, hey, man, come out to the woods. I've got something really cool to show you. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. We sat down next to a trash can. He opened up that trash can and pulled out these magazines from like the 1970s. And my parents had kept me very sheltered. I'd never seen any of that stuff before. And honestly, I thought it was gross. But there was something inside of me that wanted to see more of it. It's a weird, weird thing. 71% of teens hide online behavior from their parents. 64% of college men and 18% of college women spend time online for internet sex every week. This is all from CovenantEyes.com. 68% of young um, adult men, 18% of women use porn at least once a week. If there has been anything that has helped increase this idea in the sexual revolution and our struggles, it is no doubt that, that pornography is affecting this. Did you know that if you take all the major league sports, baseball, NBA, hockey, I don't know, maybe even badminton, that if you take all of that and all of the money that is generated from all professional sports, that it is less than how much money is made for pornography or by pornography every year. See, the issues of pornography is causing not only for us to be is seen by the church, but also by non-Christians. Uh, recently, Time Magazine released an article from an anti-porn activist who are non-Christians but are wanting to put an end to pornography. And this is the reason why. This group consists of young men who say pornography has compromised their ability to function sexually in real life. Gail Dines, in her book, Pornland, says this, Young men who have become addicted to porn neglect their schoolwork, spend huge amounts of money they don't have, they become isolated from others and often suffer depression. Dr. William Struthers says this, Men who use porn become controlling, highly introverted, depressed, disassociative, distractible, narcissistic, curious, and have high anxiety and low self-esteem. Naomi Wolf writes this, after all, pornography works in the most basic of ways on the brain. It's Pavlonian. It's, you know, that whole dog situation where he could ring the bell and the dog would slobber. An organism is, is one of the, excuse me, an orgasm is one of the biggest reinforces imaginable. If you, 
orgasm with your wife, a kiss, a scent, a body. That is what, over time, will turn you on. If you open your focus to the endless stream of ever more transgressive images of cybersex, that is what it will take to turn you on. The ubiquity, that means like that things are everywhere, images are everywhere, of sexual images does not free eros, but dilutes it. See, pornography is not simply hardcore images and movies. Pornography can come in a lot of different forms. Anything that we read or see that causes these fantasies in us is pornography. Whether that's Playboy, whether that's a male or female walking down the street, whether it's Sears and Roebuck catalog, all of those things can reflect and create within us fantasy lives that are not God-honoring. Did you know that currently one-third of all internet pornography is viewed by women? I must warn uh, my, my sisters as well in this. I've seen lots of women get really upset at men and their husbands for looking at internet pornography, for looking at images, and for watching these movies. And yet they feel like there is nothing wrong with them reading romance novels. I want you to understand, those things as well are a type of emotional pornography that can lead to a fantasy that is not real life. Whether that's unconsciously or Consciously, it is having the same effect on you ladies when you read those things as it does to men when they watch those things. For both men and women, emotional and physical pornography can create a fantasy world and expectations on people that cannot be met in a real relationship. One of the core issues that we saw last week was how anger devalues a person. It devalues a relationship. We see the same issues here. It takes God's gift and turns it and makes it into an object to be worshipped instead of a person to know. Do you get that? Whenever we engage in these things, it takes God's gift and turns it into an object to be worshipped instead of a person to know. Pornographic images for a man, reacts. he reacts to those mentally and physically. He creates in his mind a view of women that she, your wife, can never live up to. Pornographic novels and movies for ladies. I want you to understand this. You react to that mentally and emotionally. It creates a view of a man that he cannot live up to. He can't live up to that. Even some of our our Christian romance novels that don't have sex in them, but the guy's coming home every day and leading the family in prayer, like his shadow heals people, or whatever it is. It's like we can even create inside of these novels even a spiritual sense that can become spiritual pornography. Now, should there be expectations on us as men? Yes, 
Should we be leading our homes? Yes. Should we be pastoring our homes and leaving and, and, and doing devotionals with our families? All of those, yes. But some of that for you ladies can become emotional, mental pornography, and you create a, a stereotype of what your man should be look like because you have found it inside of these books or these movies. And I want you to know your man is not Jesus. There's only one. So your hope and your trust must be found not in your man, not in your woman. Your hope and trust must be found in Jesus. For us guys, your standard of beauty should be found only in your wife. But when we have flooded our minds with all of these images, when we have flooded our brains with all of these images in movies, then what we do is we compare our wives to these you know, airbrushed, photoshopped images of what she should be like and what she should do. Let's all face this, and this has become very eye-opening for, for couples and for people. It is not like the movies. It's not like the movies. There isn't a soundtrack. There's not a fog machine and flashing lights. But it is special, and it is a gift, and it is is sacred. John Piper says this, lust is a sexual desire that dishonors the object and disregards God. You take God away, you take the honor of a person away, and what you have left is lust. Did you get that? It dishonors God and it dishonors the subject. It just makes them an object for you to conquer. What is Jesus after? Jesus is after our hearts. He's after our motives. Lust reveals a breakdown in a relationship and our selfishness. It reveals that, man, it is all about me. You don't even need another person anymore. God has called us, though, to sexual purity for life. A lot of times we just talk about, Lord Jesus, help, help our kids to be sexually pure, to be pure until they get married. That is not the prayer. The prayer should be for all of us, God, keep us sexually pure for our lives. Lust says, I don't want to have to earn it. I don't want to wait for God's timing. When we do this, we're saying, we are God, we know what is best, and we want it now. Jesus continues in verse 29, when he talks about fighting or dying. He says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, so Jesus has been talking primarily about adultery here and lust, but then he's going to open up an umbrella. So up until this point, if you go, man, I don't struggle with those things. One, you're probably a liar. Two, he now embraces you and pulls you into the conversation because he says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, so whatever sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than it is for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. See, Jesus moves, again, from this, this kind of pinpointed idea of adultery and lust and fornication and those sins to this very, very broad view of sin. After reading this verse in the Bible, there was one of our early church fathers, his name was Origen, who really struggled with lust, even to the point where he castrated himself only to regret it later in life. Yeah, go figure. 
only to regret it later in life because even without his, his genitals, it did not take away the lust in his heart and in his mind. In 2010, there was a pastor here in Kentucky that was found dead in his church. He had killed himself, but before he killed himself, he had cut off many of his members. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't believe that Jesus should be taking literal here. I think that he's using hyperbole, or if you're from Allen County, hyperbole, all right? That Jesus is, is using hyperbole here. He is not saying that we should physically maim ourselves, but is saying something that we should radically remove anything in our life that would lead us to sin. Everything in our lives should be removed from us if it is leading us to sin in whatever way that is. Jesus is saying that it, if there is something that we are holding to that is of great value, like a hand, and it is causing us or leading us to sin, then we should remove it from our lives. Jesus is saying that if you are see, what you are seeing causes you to sin, then live like a blind person. When I go to the beach, I see lots of crabs because they're on the sand. I look out and I look down. He's saying if, if what you're seeing is causing you to sin, to live as a blind person. Hey, brother, I'm going to talk to you, but I'm going to look this way. I'm going to pretend like I have blinders on my eyes. If your feet are taking you to places that lead you to sin, then do not go. If you're being sinful with your hands, live as though you do not have hands. Make the hard choice, brothers and sisters, to fight. On many occasions in my own life and in counseling with others um, who are really struggling in a variety of sins, this is the question that I will often ask them. Are you willing to do, by God's grace, whatever it takes to stop this sin, to stop this addiction, to do whatever it is to stop dishonoring God? Will you do whatever it takes to stop? To, to stop being tempted to sin? If there are things in your life tough decisions that you need to make. Are you willing to fight or are you going to die in this sin? But Jesus is calling us to get rid of everything in our lives. We need to understand that there's a difference between confession of sin and repentance from sin. Confession is one step in repentance. But many people will confess sins and stop there. Why do they stop there? Because they feel better. They've told you what they've done. They've, they've laid it on the line. I've seen this over and over and over again. People will get emotion. Oh, they'll feel like, a, they'll tell you, man, a weight has been lifted off of me. I'm so glad that I shared this with you. I'm so glad that I just laid it out there and said, men, this is the things that I am involved in. But a lot of people will stop right there. If you ask them the question, are you willing to do anything to stop this? And they'll say, yes, yes, I will do anything to stop this. And yet their decisions after that moment do not reflect that they have repented. 
They've just merely confessed. So I look at the alcoholic and I'll say, stop going to bars. There's a winner. Stop buying it. Stop hanging out with people for a season at least who encourage you to sin in this way. I've looked at two married couples and I had to tell them they became Christians. They became baptized. They wanted to be faithful in leadership. And they were living together. They did everything together. All their bills were together. They had cars together. They had everything together. And they began to realize as they were growing in their relationship with Jesus and that there's something wrong here. And I had to look at them in a counseling session and say, well, here's the deal. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you guys have to separate all of your belongings. You have to move out of that house together that you had, that you both are paying rent on, in order to honor God. Do you think that was a hard decision for those couple? Initially it was. But you know, the day they got married, it was worth it. He slept on a couch and bummed couches for a lot of months there till he ca- could find a place or until they finally got married and honored. You think that's tough? Well, losing a hand is tough. Chopping off a leg, it's supposed to hurt to be able to do this. Pornography, I've told guys, man, get rid of your smartphone. Go back to Nokia, like Nokia number one. All you got is a green screen snake. You can't look up anything. Get rid of that sucker. I've told guys, man, if you really want to stop looking at porn, if you want to heal your marriage, then you go right now and you get your TV and you bring it to my house. You go get rid of that Mac computer. I don't care that you paid $5,000 for it. If you really want to honor God, you want to honor Him in your singleness, in your marriage, then you go get the stuff that's leading you to temptation and you bring it to my house right now. That's what Jesus is getting at. got to separate yourself. You've got to remove it. I've told you guys before, I don't, I don't typically go to our mailbox because Laura gets a great magazine. It's called Victoria's Secret. But Victoria's Secret is not made for women to typically look at. You do not put a woman in a bra and panties and douse her with water for women to go, yeah, that's the one I want. You do that for dudes. And I'm all for my wife having things from Victoria's Secret, but I do not need to see that magazine. I will not ride with the lady by myself, unless it's my mom and my sister, my granny. All right? I typically will not be seen out in public with just me and a female. I've had to put boundaries there. If I do counseling with a female, there is someone that is there. Why? Not that we would engage in sin, but the temptation could possibly be there, and I don't, I don't want to have those things. I mean, Laura and I have had to get up and walk out of movies, which is so frustrating when you've paid a bazillion dollars, because we get the big popcorn, and have to leave a movie. We've had to turn things off. You know, I don't, I don't listen to, to much secular music anymore, and I'm telling you, that's a shame, because there's some great music out there, but I have to be very careful, because I love gangster rap, and when I listen to gangster rap, it reminds me of a very unhealthy season in my life. It triggers memories. And so, maybe you call this the Pentecostal thing, I don't know, but when I was a, um, after I became a Christian, I took him had those things burned. You got to get rid of it. You got to turn it off. Close up that novel. 
And not all of them are inappropriate, but you know, you know the difference, ladies. I mean, why do you think Fifty Shades of Grey was so popular? It wasn't a bunch of dudes reading that book, because we don't read. <laughs> it was ladies. Ladies driving out to, man, I'm getting my tickets early. And, and from what my research that I've done is that, you know the reason why in that movie he, like, abuses those women? is because he was sexually abused. And then he abuses women for enjoyment. Does anybody see a problem there? That is really sad. It's really dark. It is better for us to live boring lives in some areas than to experience all and invite disaster. Christian, it is okay to be boring. It is okay to say, you know what, I'm not seeing Hangover 15. It's, it's okay to say, I haven't watched that movie, or I, I don't know that song that's all about that bass. I mean, I don't know it. It's, it's okay to, to be boring in some areas so that we don't invite disasters. Don't tell me you can't listen to an hour-long sermon because did you know everything we read, everything we watch, everything we listen to, you are being discipled by it. You are being preached to by this culture and whether consciously or unconsciously, it is affecting us. It's affecting us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, it says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant um, for, not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Later, Paul would say in that same um, chapter, um, flee sexual immorality. See, we would rather disrespect God than, and have the respect of men. We would rather honor our friendships that may be killing us instead of honoring God. I'll leave you with this story. April 26th, so just a few weeks away, in 2003, a man named Aaron Ralston, he was a brilliant young man. He was like a, a statistician, had this great job, but he felt like there was no adventure in his life. And so he became an expert hiker and mountain climber. This guy, you can look him up, he is, he's accomplished so much and, and does this activity solo. Like he's attempting to climb all of these mountains with no community, all by himself. He had a few days off in that April of 2013, or 2003 and decided that he was going out to, to go to Utah, to Blue John Canyon um, in Utah, and, and spend some time there meditating, hiking, rock climbing, and all these sorts of things. But his major mistake that he's made is he didn't tell anyone where he was going. He said for him that it was like going to the beach. Compared to the things that he's accomplished, this was literally just a stroll in a park for him. There was no real heavy climbing or none of those things. It was just him along with his mind and his beliefs and where he was going. He was descending into this very crack of a rock. I mean, literally, it's, it's unvisible from, if you're on the horizon, you cannot see it. You must be below it or, or underneath it to actually see this small slivering crack in this canyon that is very popular in this place. 
So he goes in there and he begins to, to climb and he's, you know, doing the fat man squeeze and all these sorts of things. And he's climbing over these boulders and, and there's these rocks that are suspended like this one. This is the actual one that he would have to climb under. And then sometimes he would have to climb over because they were suspended in between the crack and the canyon. He went over one of those boulders, this boulder right here. And when he came over on the other side, that rock shifted, moved and fell. And when it did it, it crushed his forearm against the side of that canyon. Eventually, his, his arm went numb. And Aaron began to wrestle with what he was going to do. He was by himself, and he had told no one where he was going. No one would be expecting him back at work for another four or five days. He began to panic, panic set in, he began to freak out, anxiety, all of those emotions as he tried to push and push this, this boulder, try to get out, a, he had a, like a pack that he carried with him that had some water in it, had two burritos, had a video camera, a camera, a, multi, a cheap multi-purpose tool and some rope. He gets out that multi-purpose tool and he begins to chisel away as his, numb is go, as his arm is going numb and numb and numb and numb and numb. He begins to ration his water and yet he cannot find any rest because he's in a standing position. He makes it through a night, hoping that tomorrow that someone would come in and rescue him, but nobody came. He makes it another day and another night, dealing with hypothermia, freezing, pain, agony, all of these things, and no one comes. He eventually he runs out of food. Eventually, he runs out of water. He ends up losing 45 pounds. As days go and days go, and every day he believes, I'm not going to make it. He has a video camera and begins to record messages to his family about what was going on in his life and how much that he loved them and how much he cared for them. His body slowly depleting. He becomes chapped. He's dehydrated. He's hypothermic. On the fifth night, he does an obituary to his family. He tells them what he wants to happen at his funeral. He asks whoever finds his camera in his body to please give it to his parents. He takes that worn out knife where he's been chiseling on the side of that canyon and he carves with this hand his name, the day he was born, and the day that he would surely die. And the, the letters are I-He. Never believing that he would make it to the sixth day, he, woke, he didn't wake, he just was awake all of this time. And finally decided, here's the deal, I'm either going to die trying or I'm going to die right here. And so I'm going to choose to fight. So literally, as his arm is pinned against a rock that weighs 800 pounds, he realized that even if he could cut through his arm to release his arm, that he would not be able to cut through his bone. But he figures a way to contort his body. And Aaron, about 11 o'clock on that day, snaps his bone. And then snaps the other bone. Then for the next hour, begins to perform surgery on his own arm. 
cutting through the skin, cutting through the muscles, and cutting through the tendons. So he got down to the nerve, and he said he could literally see it, but his blade wasn't strong enough to cut that nerve. He also knew as soon as he cut it, it was going to experience the most excruciating pain that he ever had in his entire life. So he took the pliers on that multi-purpose tool and began to ratchet it around and twist it until that nerve broke. And he was free. He had a four-hour hike to his car. He had to repel down, I think, about a hundred foot with one arm. And he said, here's the deal. When I cut off my arm to save my life, he said, in that moment, it was the greatest, happiest, most exhilarating, most, he, he literally calls it, that was the day I was born. When I released myself from the very thing, I could not save myself, I could not move that, but when I would cut that off, when I began to fight, and when I cut my arm off, as, as valuable as it would, was to me, as valuable as having an arm would be, he said it was so worth it to lose that arm so that I could live. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what Jesus is calling us to do with our sin. He is causing, calling us to fight against our sin. He is telling us very seriously in this passage that if you continue in these ways and you forget, or not forget, refuse to fight, then you are punishable to death. It is worthy of hell that if you, as a person, are not fighting against your sin, then you are going to die and be punished in hell. That is the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here. He lost his arm, but he gained his life. You may need to lose some friends. We may need to get rid of some televisions. We need to stop maybe drinking some beverages or doing these sorts of things. Whatever it is that is controlling your life, that has become your God, you need to, by God's grace, separate yourself. Cold turkey, hard, push against that table so that you can live. Jesus is calling us to fight. The question is not how far can we go, but how holy can we be? The Holy Spirit does not dwell in a person who is not fighting. Yet there are many people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus who are not fighting for righteousness. They're simply succumb to it. They're simply justifying. Jesus is saying, fight and win. Don't fight and you will die. God is not saying if a person has ever committed these sins that he's going to hell, but he is saying those who practice them, those who aren't, fighting against them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What does this do when we come to this realization? What does this do when we begin to fight? We realize how deep the struggle is and how much that we need Jesus. What you want, what I want most in life is often the things that will kill us. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. And so when we begin this battle, when we begin this struggle, when we begin to wrestle, when we begin to say no, when we have to get up and leave a place, when we have to run from it, what are we doing? We're saying, I am fighting for this because Jesus, you are inside of me. This is unholy. It is unrighteous. It is not for my salvation, but because I've been saved, I fight through the presence of the Holy Spirit that is inside of you because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we fight so that we can live, because if we don't fight, we die, and we die without Jesus. So we fight this. 
And in fighting it, we run to Jesus. We run to Him. That's why Jesus' standard is way much higher than all of ours. Because He is trying to show us that we need to turn to Him. You are approved in and through Him. That's why He says, man, those of us who are fighting, we realize we're poor in spirit. He goes back to the Beatitudes. He, he says, man, those who are fighting these sins, they realize, man, we are mourning over them. Because I don't know about you, but this is still a struggle. It is still a war. And yet Jesus, because of his Holy Spirit inside of us, realizes, helps us to understand that, man, that we are wretched without him. That we are broken, that we are undone without him. And we get to the point where we literally hate those sins that we are committing, where we're mourning those things, but we're willing to do whatever it takes, Jesus, by your grace to walk in newness. Jesus wants us to know that he is enough. So what do you do this morning, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if you've blown it? What do we do? We come to Jesus because adulterers are welcome at the cross. People who struggle with lust are welcome at the feet of Jesus. People who eat too much, guess what? They're welcome at the feet of Jesus. People who, who lie, people who are, 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 you know, they're thieves. People who covet, people who murder people with their minds or with their hands, all those things. Jesus is saying, I'm raising the bar here so that you will realize I'm your standard of righteousness. Come to me. Wage war against those things. Deny yourself of those things as hard and as valuable as you hold them in your hand. Deny yourself and come to Jesus for your healing. And in that, Jesus heals us personally, but He heals our marriages. He heals our relationships when we begin to realize that He is enough. He is enough. Let's pray.